Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello, I'm Dr. Gina Vale. I'm a senior research fellow at the International Centre of the Study of Radicalisation, which is based in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. My research focuses on gender and extremism or terrorism, particularly the case of Islamic State, which is what I'm going to talk about today. I want to discuss how gender is a factor across um, the trajectory of women and minors within Islamic State. This presentation is going to be based on uh, my research throughout my PhD and beyond. Uh, I've conducted extensive um, fieldwork within IDP camps, internally displaced persons camps in northern Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan, as well as collecting a large data set of IS documents and propaganda, leaked administrative documentation, as well as the social media posts of women who joined IS, and also based on my research recently um, tracking the trajectory of international um, recruits to IS. So first of all, discussing gender and jihadism. I've seen um, then in your previous lectures in this series, you've tackled the issue of radicalization. And what I want is to add a gendered lens onto that. So looking at the particular push and pull factors that both men and women, and of course, boys and girls go through when they join a group such as Islamic State. And then going to talk about um, men's, women's and minors' roles within IS's caliphate, or so-called caliphate, because you can't discuss women's roles without understanding the counterpoint to women's roles, which is the roles adopted by men. Then looking at how the group has evolved over time, the changes and expectations in women's roles, and then now, um, after the territorial collapse of the group, what is the reality for women? And what are the narratives around the fate or plight of women who have joined IS and their children? And then looking at the issues of evidence, repatriation and prosecution. How do we deal with issues of women's agency versus accountability? And also how that uh, plays out with regard to children as well. So in all, um, my argument for this is that gender really does matter when we study terrorism and also how we respond to terrorist organizations. Um, stereotypes, expectations, ideals are used to shape women's roles and men's roles within an organization, but also shape how we view men and women differently and how we respond to them as well in counterterrorism practice. So the message at the end of this is that gender matters, and I'm hoping to prove that to you. So firstly, I want to discuss the international recruitment by IS. This is based on a study I did with a former colleague of mine, Dr. Joanna Cook, and we tracked the numbers of men, women and minors who became affiliated with IS. 
Um, we documented numbers from over 80 countries worldwide of those who traveled to IS's territory and then in the case of children were born into IS's territory and then looked at those who had returned either off their own backs or through formal uh, national repatriation programs. Um, what we found was that female affiliates to the group accounted for between 13 and 16 percent of all those who joined and in the case of children that was 12 to 15 percent. So this is a very large proportion of the total affiliates of IS. Now normally when we think of women who joined a terrorist organization, particularly a Salafi jihadist organization such as IS, you think of women as being in the minority. Well, certainly these statistics show otherwise. Women were actively recruited to the group and they were able to stay engaged in IS through their roles within the organization. And at the moment, so far, very few have returned. So why is this? Well, first of all, discussing gendered radicalization. I like to think personally of radicalization with push and pull factors and I, when I think of push and pull factors, I imagine a seesaw, so a children's seesaw. But the most important thing is it's unidirectional. It's not balanced. So on the one hand, you have something pushing down. These are the push factors, pushing someone out of their society of origin, their maybe country of origin, their worldview, their mindset of origin. And this is often linked with frustrations or grievances that that person might have. It's important to link when we think of these push factors between the individual level and then larger societal level or a level that incorporates an imagined or real group or identity of that individual. So many of the women and men who joined IS found that they had individual frustrations, particularly within Muslim minority countries, Western countries, if you think of France, for example, um, that is a secular country where the burqa is banned or any religious um, symbol is banned within public spaces. Women were feeling that they were victims of discrimination, Islamophobia and injustice. That connects to states' domestic or foreign policies. So if you think of, uh, for example, the US-led invasion of Iraq or the US-led invasion of Afghanistan, for example, what IAS has done is it's tapped into narratives of frustrations and grievances about a so-called war against Islam. And that war is playing out on the lived experiences of men and women. The idea is that this um, existence within their countries or societies of origins threatens their ideals of masculinity or femininity. So on the right um, of the slide, you see a quote by Iftikhar Jaman. He was one of the very, very first Britons to leave the UK in order to join ISIS in around 2012. And he's saying that a man leaves his home to fight for the oppressed people sounds heroic until you add in Muslim man then he's a terrorist or extremist. So what he's saying is these ideals of warriorhood fighting for a cause, if it's the right cause, you have glory, you have heroism, but if it's the wrong cause, in the case of he feels that um, attached to the ideals of jihad is the wrong cause, then he's labeled a terrorist or extremist. On the other hand of the, of the seesaw, you've got something pushing down, you also have something pulling up so that seesaw tips in one direction. 
And what it is, is it's the solutions offered by that organization, by that extremist group. In the case of IS, it's not just um, a, an outlet for aggression or vengeance. That might be one element, but it's not purely violence that attracted these individuals. There were greater ideals of belonging, particularly for brotherhood and sisterhood. And you see individuals really congregating both online as they were being recruited through social media. And then once they're in the extremist organization themselves, often living together or living close by. The group promised respect, honor, and piety. So if you take my example beforehand of the burqa being banned in France, and you and you um, contrast that to Islamic State, where there was a female dress code, where that um, where the burqa was not only expected but was mandatory, you have these ideas of of women's femininity ingrained with chastity, modesty, purity, these very feminine ideals are playing out and promised to individuals that join. So on the right, there's a quote um, by a Malaysian woman who joined in her mid to late 20s. And she talks about how her status was elevated when she became a mother. Um, so these ideas that she's going from um, girlhood to womanhood through becoming a mother within IS territory, it's showing that it's not just purely the romance side, the idealistic or the, the very um, sensationalized jihadi bride narrative that women have um, have shown and demonstrated as their motivating factors, but also other ideals of becoming a mother as well is really important with regard to their roles in the organization. So what I wanted to show is some uh, further examples of social media where women um, from across the world, some of these are Australian and British, have taken to social media and showing their different um, reasons for joining the group. So on, on the one hand, you have individuals that are showing that they've met um, sisters from across um, the UK. Uh, Zahida Chenki is actually Australian. So you have the idea that they are being united within an Islamic state that knows no racial, ethnic, or national bounds. So it's really creating this sisterhood. And what that means is creating a sense of belonging, where they can be themselves and where they can connect with like-minded others. You see in the middle, um, a woman fully dressed in Islamic states, um, female dress code, the full burqa, and she's showing that there was a school named after Osama bin Laden. This is an all boys school, and there have been other photos that have shown the all girls schools within IS. So tapping into this idea of, again, modesty, separation of um, the sexes, which I'm going to talk about later. Interestingly, though, on the right, you'll see, again, Zahida Shenki deals with the issue of feminism. And feminism actually is a key theme within IS's propaganda that is focused on women. The idea that Western ideals of feminism, particularly equality of the sexes where women are expected to adopt the same roles, uh, engage in the same spaces, the, the same professions, etc. as men, it completely turned on its head within IS. So first of all, when we are discussing the roles of men and women, we need to understand that there is a binary here. On the one hand, you have men who are very much the face and muscle of the group. They took to um, 
social media in order to discuss their experiences and they certainly were the faces of the organization within the group's official propaganda. They were seen as saviors, defenders and conquerors. Very much militarized masculine ideals, the idea of masculine performance through posing with weapons for example, um, conquering the enemy, killing um, an enemy on the battlefield, showing strength, dominance, aggression, these ideals of masculinity that IS prized. It also means that a civilian man is a contradiction in terms, and this taps into what we call the gendered protection record. So ideals of masculinity, masculine strength, that means that the individual, most often male, is identifying a threat, identifying a cause to fight for, but also within that narrative, they're identifying a population to protect, to save, to safeguard. That population is feminized. They are dependent, seen as more vulnerable, often seen as more innocent. That is often the women and children within not only um, a nation state, but also a non-state group, such as Islamic State. So you have this um, site within this militarized organization of um, dominant masculine performance. And this is where we see the binary, the opposite within women's expected roles. It starts very early on, the idea of masculinization within the group. And I'm showing this image to try and demonstrate how boys are also involved. When we think of gender, certainly we don't think of just women, as I say, we think of men and masculine ideals but also not just adults. So ideals of masculinity and femininity are projected and expected upon the younger generations as well. And from IS, this started from very, very early age. So this is a screenshot from an IS execution video. That man kneeling in the middle is wearing an orange prison jumpsuit, which is reminiscent of Guantanamo Bay inmates. And uh, he is, suspected or at least charged and accused with being a spy for Mossad, the Israeli um, secret services. On the left is a young boy. At this point, he's aged around 12 to 13. He is a French Tunisian. And on the right is his uncle. So you have this family dynamic. What happens in this video is that young boy shoots the prisoner, the hostage, um, dead. And he is shown to be a young lion. That's shown in the caption there at the bottom of the screen. Young boys within IS were often termed cubs. And this is, again, this idea of masculine symbolism relating to the king of the jungle, the animal kingdom, the top of the food chain being a lion, symbols of strength and, again, aggression, a natural killer in the animal world. Within IS, men or the male militants were known as lions and the young boys were known as cubs. The idea and expectation was that those young cubs would grow into and become lions. Within this scene and within that caption at the bottom, you have the idea that this is now a young lion. The act of killing what they call an infidel, um, an enemy of Islam, a non-believer, the idea of killing that, um, that enemy raises that boy into manhood. It's become a rite of passage, 
um, that transition from boyhood to manhood is marked by an ultra-violent act. And so you have a boy's masculinity that is raised up and constructed through this performance, and you have um, a man's masculinity in the middle that is eroded. So you show a hierarchy within IS where even young boys, through their perpetration of violence, therefore are elevated in status, just as women are elevated in status as becoming mothers, as I said earlier. So where you have violence, aggression, and um, really visual um, depictions of violent roles for men and young boys, for women it's the complete opposite. The ideal role for women within IS was wife and mother. In um, a manifesto produced by female supporters for the group, and it became kind of an unofficial document that the group also pushed out through its media platforms. It advocated that Western feminism has failed women. Instead, women should stay at home. The idea is that by going into the public sphere, women are threatened by being in the company of unrelated men, but they're also emasculating men. The idea was that if women are having to leave their home to abandon their supposed foundational and rightful duties as wife and mother in order to, for example, earn a wage, be the breadwinner for the home, it's emasculating men. It's showing that men are failing at those jobs, the inherent masculine role of breadwinner and head of household. So women were expected to stay within their homes and their role was to procreate and populate the so-called caliphate. Within that was also education and indoctrination. So it wasn't purely um, cook and bottle washer, but the idea was that they had um, a role in radicalizing and indoctrinating the next generation. There was a pamphlet that was produced that really encapsulated the importance of this role. So it wasn't a demotion for women, but the idea was that men and women don't hold equal roles, but they have um, egalitarianism within IS's caliphate. They have roles of equal value. So while the roles might be different, they hold equal value within IS territory. And so this quote here really encapsulates this. It says, so ha have you understood, my Muslim sister, the enormity of the responsibility that you carry? The Ummah of ours is a body made of many parts, but that is most effective in raising a Muslim generation is the part of the nurturing mother. So again, women are shown to have value. Their contribution is important to IS. In fact, it was integral. The group was trying to build a state. This wasn't just an insurgent army. And so women being in control of the home space, raising the next generation in charge of um, indoctrination and education within the private sphere was really important as an equal and valued counterpoint to the very public and violent roles that men was expected to adopt. But then you have a need that is created within this society. So IS implemented a caliphate-wide sex segregation policy. Um, men and women were not allowed to be in the same public spaces together if they weren't related, and in some cases, even married couples were expected to walk separately on a pavement. 
So there would be um, segregated schools for girls or at least separate class times. So maybe girls would be taught in the morning, boys in the afternoon. Um, there would be separate at least wings or even full hospitals for women. Maternity wards were completely banned for entry for men, for example. What it meant was it necessitated the employment of IS-affiliated women within these paralleled institutions. So it needed female teachers, female doctors, female nurses, people, uh, female administrative clerks. It needed um, female engineers or female cleaners within hospitals, for example. And it enabled a bridge within IS's society. Because if you have a very, a very male-led, male-dominated, patriarchal structure, you have an inaccessible segment of the population if you have no bridge between the two, if you only have female civilians that are not able to speak with, engage with male militants or male members of the organisation. So women's roles were really vital in crossing that bridge. IS certainly did not shy away um, from female education and so on the top right photo you see an image of very young girls in pink hijabs, pink clothing, um, being educated with, within one of IS's schools and the girl on the right has the um, IS insignia and, and symbol on a headband over the top of her hijab. It was making a statement that women were able to be educated within IS's territory but it still um, went back to the idea that women's rightful roles were within the home. The manifesto that it produced said that in order to be educated mothers to be able to indoctrinate and, and uh, teach that next generation, women also needed an education. And so they made a statement, they, they branched away from other groups such as Boko Haram or even the Taliban um, that have banned female education. So that was really important within IS. But there were certain rules and restrictions on women's behaviour and women's activities within the organisation and those were policed by the Morality Policing Brigade, also known as the Hezba, and there were female units. They were the Umm al-Rayyan and al-Khansar Brigades and they were active from about February 2014. So that was before the group declared the establishment of their so-called caliphate in June 2014. So it shows how important these female structures were to the governance of IS's territory even before the caliphate was ever established. And these uh, women had exclusive privileges. They were the only women who were able to drive within IS's territory. They were the only women who were able to hold a weapon and use that weapon within public. And so you see that image in the bottom right of women around a car waving the IS flag and holding their AK-47. So they were able to engage in weapons training and weapons handling. Um, they were able to walk around IS territory without a male chaperone. So they had these exclusive privileges. But by nature of them being within IS's territory, they were also able to mete out punishments for those women who did not conform to these regulations, those who did not have these privileges. And so it legitimated intrafemale violence and it created a hierarchy within women 
um, or among women within IS. You had women who were affiliated with the group, who were armed, had power, had influence, authority, and even the ability to inflict corporal punishment on other women who did not conform to these strict regulations. However, importantly, whereas you have girls' education that is promoted within IS, and that photo on the top is official screenshot from an IS propaganda video, the picture on the bottom is unofficial. This has come from one of the women's social media accounts. Adult women were not pictured in IS's official propaganda. Um, if they did post on social media, as you see, they're fully covered, and therefore it's very difficult to identify them individually as being um, affiliated with one branch of Islamic State or another, having certain roles or undertaking certain activities within the group. It's very difficult to ascertain what these individuals did. So the age-old question comes as to whether women are allowed to take up arms for Islamic State, whether they're able to engage in combat or other military operations. The question really comes down to what Nelly Lahoud has called offensive versus defensive jihad. And this was a policy that was actually enacted by Abdullah Azam from Al-Qaeda. So this has been inherited um, from Al-Qaeda into IS's policy. What it means was in a state of offensive jihad, where a group is expanding its territory, it's on the victory march, for example, um, women required the permission from their husbands in order to take up arms, and children required the permission of their parents. So you have women and children bound up in this idea of requiring authorization. Men, of course, did not require that authorization. On the other hand, in a stage of defensive jihad, um, you have women and children not requiring that permission. Throughout the timeline of IS, it wasn't until October 2017, so over three years after the caliphate was declared, until women were allowed to take up arms. This was um, produced through an announcement within IS's Arabic language newsletter, which called for women to take up arms and to follow the example of the female companions of the Prophet. It's as, almost as if the example of the female companions of the Prophet was suddenly remembered out of thin air. It had been forgotten about until it was conveniently relevant in this stage of defensive jihad. By October 2017, IS had lost control of Mosul and it had, um, was under siege within Raqqa, which was the group's de facto capital within Syria. But it's important that it took a long time to actually see evidence of women engaging in fighting. It wasn't until February 2018 where we actually saw a video footage produced by one of IS's official media outlets showing a woman engaging in combat. Again, it was a very gender justification that was given for women fighting. When that video was released, there was a lot of backlash and, and criticism from uh, IS's male supporters as to why women were engaging in fighting. This was a man's world, um, and certainly a male world as, at that. But the justification said that this was a chaste mujahid woman she was journeying to her Lord with the garments of purity and faith, 
So again, she was wearing um, the full burqa, she was adhering to IS's dress code and therefore was not sacrificing or, or, um, or doing anything wrong against IS's gendered regulations in order to take up arms. But then comes the important part. She's seeking revenge for her religion and for the honour of her sisters. Just as you had that tiered hierarchy within IS's internal morality policing brigades where some women were able to take up arms, were able to mete out punishments against others, you have again an elite of some women who were able to engage in combat and seek revenge for the honour of their sisters. So the majority of IS's female population once again is still being seen as those that require protection, those that are dependent, those that are innocent. And it's the exception made to a small elite. So it's still the exception rather than the rule. On the next slide, this is a, a screenshot that is taken from the video that was um, published in February 2018. What's important to note is that the woman in the centre is actually standing next to, although slightly distanced from, a male militant on her right. One of the reasons why women were not permitted to engage in combat is the fear of intermixing or illicit intermixing between the sexes. Somehow that ruling has gone out the window. Um, but what it does show in this uh, video is that women can now be considered a threat. This is the first time that women were highlighted within IS propaganda. It's actually depicting women front and centre. The fact that that detailed narration was making a point of describing the women's garments for justifying her actions and her presence on this battlefield. It's calling attention to a woman who is right in the centre of that frame. It's the first time that women were um, appearing officially in IS propaganda, let alone being the stars of the show. There was slow motion footage. And so what it means is that we've gone from a period of women being very domesticated, expected to stay at home, taking up a very nurturing role, which is an extension of IS's ideals of women being nurturing, maternal, to now women engaging in the public sphere. They are battle-hardened, they've undergone military training supposedly, and they now can be considered a threat. So in, in October 2017, or at least in February 2018, when this video came out, it served as a significant turning point in women's roles, activities, and therefore threat perception within Islamic State. But what happened afterwards? Because when Islamic State's territory collapsed, uh, in around March to April 2019, there were thousands of IS-affiliated persons as well as, of course, the um, civilians who were being held and detained within IS's territory that were suddenly liberated, and they needed to contain them. And what on earth do you do with these thousands of individuals? Well, the men and adolescent boys were taken immediately to prisons within the region. And at the moment in the al Hasake region of northeastern Syria, there are thousands of IS-affiliated uh, men and teenage boys that are occupying very, very crowded prison cells. And I'll come back to that in a second. You also have thousands or tens of thousands of IS-affiliated women and children that are being held in IDP or refugee camps within northeastern Syria. 
So what can women do for the cause? Are they able to contribute to the legacy or the enduring dream or promise of Isis Caliphate? Well, they certainly can't take up arms. When they entered into uh, these camps and were registered by the Syrian Democratic Forces, there was mass disarmament and um, the group surrendered as a whole. So certainly women have no militant role any longer, and neither do men, of course, in the prison. Now the importance is to ensure that the ideals of Isis Caliphate live on, and that's important for the next generation. So adolescent boys and upwards were um, detained in prisons with men, but very young boys and of course girl children were kept within the camps with adult women. In around June 2019, there were approximately 23,000 school-aged children in one camp alone, the largest camp known as Al-Hol Camp in northeastern Syria. At that time, UNICEF only had sufficient learning centres to cater for around 5,500 of these school-aged children. When many of these women were brought into these camps, they were also pregnant. So you have this burgeoning um, child population within these camps that have no opportunity for, or very little opportunity, for education and development within the camp setting. This is where women have reverted back to their essential, or what IS calls their foundational and primary role, of raising the next generation. In July 2019, in Al-Hol camp, as you see in the photo that I've put in there, there were young boys that were shown in a video crowded round a lamp post within the camp. They created their own makeshift IS flag using black fabric and, and white ink, and they'd raised it from this lamp post. Um, and they were chanting, they were standing around the base of this lamppost, they were holding up their index finger as a symbol of Tawhid, which is Islamic monotheism, and became um, quite a cult gesture or symbol within IS's propaganda from adult male militants. And they were standing around, raising their index finger and chanting Baqiya, from Baqiya wa Tatamadad, which means remaining and expanding. This is IS's slogan back from the very early days when they were on the victory march through Iraq and Syria. If you look at the ages of these young boys and you match this up with the trajectory or the timeline of IS's territorial holdings, schools due to um, aerial bombardments as well as ground force operations, IS's schools were being closed from around mid-2016 onwards. Um, actual institutional education wasn't seen so much as a priority, especially when there were women at home that were expected um, to take up that informal educational role. Military training camps for young adolescent boys were also closed very early on as the group was moving through its, very, its various front lines as it was being pushed back into smaller and smaller pockets of territory. So what does this mean? These young boys that were pictured within this uh, video showing um, still some commitment or at least some uh, mimicry of commitment to IS's cause were far too young to have ever been taught or trained within these institutions. What it means is that women have played a role within that private sphere, within the tent setting, in these camps, within the home setting, within IS's caliphate, to keep that dream alive. In the foreground of the video, and I've 
and I've not shown it in, in this screenshot, were crowds of women who were encouraging uh, these young boys. So they have a role to play in fostering these um, symbols, these actions of commitment among these young boys. These women have also taken it upon themselves to implement the ideals of the morality police, the Hizbah, within IS's territory. So you have a very divided society within these camps. On the one hand, you have individuals who might have become disillusioned um, with the group, the promises that they offered were false, and so they don't wish to wear um, the full burqa, or they want to remove their gloves, for example, or they don't want to strictly follow IS's regulations now that they are not in the, t the caliphate setting. There are other women who have taken it upon themselves to police these women. And again, that hierarchy is continuing to play out. You have women who have um, erected their own self-declared courthouses within these camp settings. Some women's tents have been burned, or they have had um, fruit or vegetables taken away from them. In some cases, they have even been killed um, for, for going against IS's strictures, even though there is no male authority to police them. What it means is that women are engaging organically in this activism for the group. They are implementing IS's ideals without that male structure present. But on the other hand, they're also using very gendered language when they appeal to IS's male followers for help. They are still, at the end of the day, being held indefinitely within these camps and ideally would like to get out and escape. So in June 2019, a group of women uh, launched a campaign called Justice for Sisters. It was in Arabic, English, and interestingly German. And you'll see a screenshot from one of the videos on the bottom right. They use language such as they've not received any help, they feel forgotten and abandoned, and they're calling to their brothers. So whereas on the one hand you have women who by launching these videos, by encouraging their children, by implementing IS's ideals organically, you have um, more visual independence, organic activism by some of these women without the constraints of the male leadership. On the other hand, you have very gendered language resorting to help, still dependence, very feminine dependence on their male counterparts. So it's very unlikely that women are able to lead a physical resurgence of Islamic State, but they certainly are still continuing to play a role in the ideological legacy of the organization in that post-territorial phase. And so finally, to discuss the issues of accountability, prosecution, and of course, the need for evidence. So as I said, you have this um, division between the disillusioned and the dedicated within these camps, and you have some women who have been uh, punished not only for uh, not wearing the correct dress according to IS's strictures within these camps, but also reaching out to humanitarian organisations for assistance, um, the media, or in some cases legal representation to try and aid their repatriation and return. By renouncing their support for the group, they are aiming to try and return to their countries of origin. In order to do that, they need to navigate the accountability and the threat assessment of women. As I said before, when they engaged in militancy, still a certain elite few, but when they did engage in militancy, women were then suddenly shown as 
threats, security threats, potentially for their countries of origin and therefore potential current countries of return. So what is the narrative that women are using to describe their experiences? Because of course women were not shown in IS's official propaganda, some of the women were not active on social media either, and so as I said it's very difficult to identify them as individuals within the caliphate, to place them, to track their activities. So what did they do? Well by, by resorting to what I've termed the just a housewife trope, they're able to go back and rely upon IS's own words, own rulings, to determine or to try and present the idea that they are not a threat. To go back to the stereotype of being maternal, nurturing, being domesticated, not having a public role to play. If there's no evidence, women might argue, of them engaging in violence, engaging in IS's crimes, engaging in combat, then there's no crime to have been committed, supposedly. That's the argument that could be made by the women themselves. This uncertainty has led to very, very low returns and repatriation rates for women. So in my very first slide where I showed the table of men, women and minors who had travelled to IS and who had returned either individually or through national repatriation programmes, the percentage of women returnees is still very, very low. Um, only a, a few hundred had returned by mid-2019. And the uncertainty of women's actions is part of that reason for lower returns. Whereas for men, you have evidence by them being featured in IS's propaganda, being the poster boys of the group's jihad, you have evidence of what they have done within IS. You have the ability to press charges for criminal activity beyond group membership. For women, that's not possible. So if you repatriate these women with no knowledge of what they did within IS, what do you do with them? Unfortunately, most of the time it would be to let them go free. Most rehabilitation programs are voluntary, or at least within the UK. And so unless you can um, prove that they meet the evidentiary threshold to prosecute for crimes beyond group membership, you'll likely face very, very short prison sentences for these women, and then they are released into the public. Can you take that gamble? A lot of states have chosen not to. But my argument and what I'll leave you with is that we need to consider evidence by looking outside of the box. So from my research, I've drawn from, as I say, the social media posts of women who joined, where you can document or find that they've documented their lives under IS territory. Also from leaked administrative documentation by the group, where they show the regulations that women were subject to that controlled their activities and movements. Also the propaganda that idealizes or sets out the ideal roles for women. These are all important, but these are all in theory, or, or these are the um, rose-tinted version of life within IS. What you need to look at is what the women say themselves, not the women that were affiliated with IS, but those who lived alongside them. Female civilians, and particularly Yazidi women, who were taken as captives, within IS that were held within the family homes of IS um, members, these women have engaged, they have interacted with, they have come across on a daily basis IS-affiliated women. 
In the case of Yazidi women, if they are held within the family home um, of IS members, they have a day-to-day a diary, almost a mental diary, of what these women have done. They are being able to see what happens when the burqa is removed, when they are behind closed doors. This is a really important source of evidence. In the bottom right is an image of Ashwak Haji Hamid Talo. She is the first Yazidi woman to have entered a Iraqi court and actually secured the conviction of her IS captor and rapist, not only for group membership, but also for her rape and abduction. The only woman so far in an Iraqi court. So far there have been about three or four cases that have um, come to light within German courts and some of them have not yet uh, had an outcome. But this woman took to the stand to share her victim witness testimony. She was able to have her day in court. She was able to have at least national, if not international, recognition for the crimes that were perpetrated against her individually and therefore seek a conviction that wasn't just a blanket conviction for group membership. There have been many cases of cursory trials and even executions of IS-affiliated members within Iraqi courtrooms. Those individuals who have been killed within or in the name of justice will never face charges of genocide, crimes against humanity, abduction, rape, human trafficking, you name it, these crimes are possible and have been committed by IS-affiliated persons. They will never face them, they were never charged with them. If we now turn to other sources of evidence, such as victim witnesses, they not only are able to provide evidence to be able to convict beyond simply a blanket group membership charge, but also they themselves can have recognition and their day in court. So that's a really important way in which to engage victims of terrorist organisations such as Islamic State and to therefore hopefully with time achieve justice. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.